Maria, give me strength. I mean, can you imagine? Just like paint that picture in your head. I'm in my room eating my mango, just clutching Maria's picture, (laughs) crying. It's all sticky with mango juice. (laughs) Welcome to Montessori Moms in the Wild. We are three trained Montessori guides and new moms. We are not here to be your guide per se, but simply to share, commiserate, and even inspire each other on this wild journey. Each episode, we will discuss a different element of the Montessori philosophy, explaining why it is one we find so important and interesting, and then take turns being blatantly honest about how we succeed and struggle with these practices in real life. There is no Montessori album for parenthood, and we are certainly in no shape to write one. Our hopes are that together we can remind ourselves of what is important to us as Montessorians and as mothers in a way that might help other parents, or at least entertain them. So sit back and relax as we take Montessori out of the textbooks and into the wild. Welcome, everyone. My name is Laura. I'm a mother of one with my Montessori training in lower elementary and upper elementary. So that's ages six through 12. I am here with Rachel, soon to be mother of two, who has a Montessori training in infant toddler. So that's a birth through three years old. And Megan, mother of two with her training in lower elementary, ages six through nine. All right, let's start by catching up. What's been going on for everybody this week? Rachel, <laughs> kind of volunteer you. Yeah, sure. I still have this cruddy cold that I'm fighting, but um, otherwise, it was a good week. You know, I sailed into like a three day weekend. We have tomorrow off and then like a virtual work day Tuesday. So, feeling really good to have like a good break. My parents came this weekend and my mom just got so much baby stuff done for me. So, that's the best thing ever. But it's been a good week. We're just kind of, it's been normal week. If I could just get my voice back, I would be very, very happy. I think you sound a little bit sexy, if I'm honest with you, Rachel. <laughs> I think this like kind of smoky Hello. evening, this evening, Rachel, is very intriguing to me. <laughs> you know that episode of Friends where Phoebe gets a cold and she sings Smelly Cat and she yes. just sounds super sexy and like, wants to keep her cold because it makes her sound so good. You've got you've got a nice podcast <laughs> voice going on right now. <laughs> it could be like on the six o'clock radio show. And yeah. <laughs> You're on with Rachel. Oh my God. <laughs> of all the people, that makes me so happy. <laughs> Okay, I will piggyback off of Rachel's and say that this long weekend that we are currently like smack dab in the middle of is giving me life. I feel just so much freedom and joy. It's sunny. It's kind of chilly, but like warm if you can stand in the sun. And um, and I have so many more hours of not having to be working right now. And that's so exciting. It's so exciting. <laughs> it is. When do you think we'll be able to change it so that like every weekend is like a three-day weekend? You know, like never. when do you think we'll come up <laughs> off of the labor structure that we came up with and like the turn of the industrial revolution? It's just not serving us anymore. It's okay? not. Not at all. I think Gen Z, they're the ones. They're going to yeah. fix it. <laughs> we can have 
hopefully I'll still be alive and probably still working. So <laughs> hopefully they do come up with something. All we'll right, be, Megan. We'll be teaching with our canes. Well, <laughs> you guys are all sunshine and rainbows. I'm going to come in and say that I've been struggling today. I am still in my pajamas. It has been like <sighs> my children. I love them so much, but I was <laughs> like ready to put them on our front doorstep and just like leave them out there. In a little box that yeah. says free to a good home. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so I my wonderful husband, he's like, you need to you need to go. Like you need to just get in the car and go drive, go get a coffee, and you know, just you need a minute. And so I did, which I love him so much for kicking me out. Um, and so I was <laughs> He's driving. He's a good guy. <laughs> um, so I was driving and I just like turned up. Okay. So let me, let me start by saying this. I've tried a lot of these like self-care things that they say to do as a mom, like the bubble bath, the meditation, the drinking water and going to bed early. And I will tell you, nothing works like just cranking up my volume in my car with early 2000s punk rock oh and yes. just like screaming yes. at the top of my lungs so I just oh if you're having gosh. a hard day I'm telling you go do it also maybe a little bit of Olivia Rodrigo pretend like you're 17 years old and I I'm just like, I felt so much better. Just like screaming. <laughs> Dude, that is so funny that you say that because just the other day I drove in listening to for the first time in so long, a Blink-182 album, mm. which was like the soundtrack for me of like 2000 through <laughs> 2004, I would say it was Blink-182 and other emo, screamo hits of that nature. Um, and I rode in listening to that. And I remembered every, it's how, where does your brain store these lyrics that they just oh come gosh. back to you like that? But oh man, it was cathartic in a whole they're in new way. Souls. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. So that's my self-care tip of the day. Good. Get in the car and turn on some music from when you were 16. And then you will, you will remember that yes, my life is hard, but at least I'm not awkward and 16 and some boy just broke my heart and I hate my life and I'm like crying in my bedroom. Like at least I'm not there, you know? That's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Follow me for other self-care tips. One of my other favorites is to go into my room by myself and watch TV while eating a whole mango. <laughs> Okay, what you guys can't see are the gestures that are coming along with the word mango. Oh my God. It's a pretty key part of this. When my son was like newly born, so like in that hard time where they're just not sleeping at all, I every night would go get into bed and put, I'm going to paint you a little picture. I'd put a towel on my lap. I'd sit in bed (laughs) with my mango and I would cut it and watch some kind of trashy television show and just eat my whole mango and just be so happy. <laughs> a mango. Yeah. I'm glad that brings you pleasure. Beautiful, innocent image <laughs> in my mind. Like have this big bowl of ice cream or like eating a whole bag of true fruit. No, you get, get a whole mango. I just, I really like mangoes. <laughs> I too. You're making me want a mango now. There you go. 
<laughs> so self-care because mangoes are self-care. <laughs> All right. So overall, everyone's having a great week. <laughs> All right. So let's get into today's topic We have talked a lot about Maria Montessori and the Montessori method, but we haven't talked much about the queen herself. Who was Maria Montessori and why do we, 70 years after her death, try so hard to keep the heart of her work strong and relevant today? Today we are going to do an overview of the timeline of Maria Montessori's life and her work. There is a lot about her life that we won't be able to cover today because we can't even begin to cover the amount of accomplishments and impacts her life had in a one-hour episode. It just isn't possible. So we've taken and summarized a timeline provided by AMI, which was founded by Maria Montessori herself. And the purpose of this episode is to bring this method into context. We talk so often about the things that are and are not Montessori or what she said, or what she wrote in her books and lectures. But to understand the Montessori method at its core, we have to understand its origin and the woman who knocked down so many doors to bring it to us. So, Maria, let's do it. Oh, guys, I'm excited about this one. I'm excited to talk about the queen herself. How should we... All right, so for the listeners at home, we have a timeline of the things that we agree are like Uber probably and some of the most, yeah, some of the bigger, more important ones, or at least the things that we find super fascinating about her. So we tried to come up with something kind of concise. I feel like, should we just start at the top and just like kind of go through her life? Let's start at yeah. the top. Happy birthday, Maria August 31st, <laughs> 1870, Chiara Valle in the Ancona province of Italy. Did that come out? Does that sound Sounds good? Beautiful. What I just did? <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you Italian? <laughs> you know, I am. I'm a little bit. Thank you for noticing. I do dabble in being Italian. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm basically Marie Montessori reincarnated, I think. Megan died. Megan's dead. Um, Bye, Megan. Okay, so Maria hits the scene. I dabble in being (laughs) so. Is that not the right verb to use for your heritage? Um, Uh, Sometimes. (laughs) And I feel like it. Uh, Maria hits the scene, 1870. Not an easy time to be a super strong-willed, super intelligent female who doesn't want to play a certain and limited role in society. Okay, so that's like the overall background for the entire rest of this story. 1870, that's a good chunk of time uh, ago. Not that long in the grand scheme of things, but obviously society and everything in general felt pretty different back then. Yes. So she and her family moved to Rome where she started going to school. She attended a boys' school in Rome with a science and engineering emphasis, which again, is very different than girls her age, which were going to school to be teachers or study music or be homemakers. And um, so early on, her aspirations were much higher than really any woman had shown her. Like there wasn't other women that were up doing these sciences and medical practices that she could look up to. I'm not sure how she decided that she wanted to do this. And I would have loved to be a fly on that wall, but she 
wanted to be an engineer. And then as she started going through school, decided that she wanted to become a doctor, much to the opposition of her father. Her father very much wanted her to be a teacher, uh, which is interesting (laughs) what she went on to do, but she took the much more complicated road of becoming a doctor first and became the first woman to obtain her doctor of medicine degree from the University of Rome, which is just first, the first female doctor. And you know, that wasn't an easy road. Like, you know, she was met with opposition at every turn, including her own father, who she was super close to and like really loved and respected. So that's tough. I do think it's worth noting her mom was like an original, like badass queen. She was very much on Maria's side about you do this, you go little rock star when everybody else was like, nope, sorry, you're a female. Also to become a doctor. I don't know if you guys ever heard this, but I think this really speaks to like the crazy amount of just like backbone and gall and like stick to that this lady had. Um, so to, to get her medical degree, which is what she had, you have to practice on cadavers, right? That's a big part of the experience. And so she was not allowed to be around a naked cadaver the same time that the men were. So they would have their normal class during the day. And then Maria by freaking candlelight would be down in the morgue examining cadavers by herself to learn whatever this concept was or this disease or whatever the case is. And it's just like, my God, she was brave and strong and just like gutsy, you know? I just keep thinking like this was like in the 1890s, like, like nobody, this is not normal at all. Like she was so ballsy to even like, to take a risk and do anything for herself other than be the woman like a mother or a teacher because that's all people did then yeah so something that we kind of skipped over was that in order so first she was denied acceptance to the university of rome and she had to go to the pope that's right for approval yeah yeah Yeah, that's a cool thing i mean again a cool like just feather in her cap for being so brave and gutsy and just like determined because the Pope is, I mean, that's bigger than going to the president at that point in U.S. history like that. The Pope is like the second best thing to talking to God himself and asking for permission to do I don't even like to call restaurants and tell them (laughs) what I want for dinner. Not it. That's me. Not it. Yeah. Like if I can't order it on the app, like I'll just starve. Like no. So what you're saying is you don't want to have a one-on-one sit down with the Pope begging. It makes my hands sweaty just thinking about it. Agreed. Yeah. But uh, that's the thing about Maria, man. She would not be stopped. So let's talk about. She would order her food over the phone. Like no no problem. problem. She'd order everybody's food over the phone. (laughs) All right. So, right. So she's a total queen. And then in 1898, big life event for Maria. At this point, she has, she finished her degrees and such. It kind of looks like per the timeline. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And has not started working necessarily with children in the, in the capacity that we think of her yet, but big life thing, 1898, she gives birth to her own child, Mario, Mario Montessori. Um, comes onto the scene. So that's kind of a complicated one too. I mean, poor Maria, she can't catch a break. Nothing is like straightforward, right? So what did we learn? We did a little bit of research on this one because we all had 
pretty mixed feelings and also mixed like background information on Mario in Maria's life because we all did know going in that she did not like full time raise him. And so that's like a little bit of an interesting pill to swallow when you're going through the training and you're seeing like what a gift she was to children and how much she clearly like got it and loved them and was all about what she was doing. But then you hear that she didn't raise her own kid and it's like, whoa, what? How did, what, what happened there? So Megan, you did some research. I did do some research in that. And I did the research because it's a little bit confusing there isn't a ton of like concrete evidence about what exactly went down because obviously, so she got pregnant out of wedlock. So it's not like she was going around talking about this to everybody. So it's a little right. bit. And it's 1898. So it's not like people are like tweeting about what's going on with your local celebrities. Right. So it's a little bit confusing and, and I am just seeing kind of differing stories. And that's really what they are at the end of the day, their stories. Um, we do know that she was on, she was a co-director with, and I don't even know how to say his name. Does anyone know? Giuseppe Montesano. Giuseppe Montesano. That's Joseph in Italian. Okay. I love that name. So she was a co-director with Giuseppe. Yes. Yes. Um, Montesano on the orthopedic in an institution called the orthopedic school and they fell in love and um, she got pregnant and based on what I saw and have read they were unable to get married for family reasons and she as we are talking about the timeline, where we are in history and where she was in her career. And how hard she had to fight to get to that spot in her yes, career. found it best to have Mario away from her and raised by others where she would go visit him. And it was kind of hush-hush and a little bit scandalous for the time. And um, Mario's father ended up getting married and Maria was kind of left with this child who she didn't have in her care full time. And from what I understand, it was a really difficult situation. I've like, I, if I put myself in that situation, like what would I have done in that time? I've beaten all the odds to get to where I need to go. I get pregnant and this man is not really able to give me the life of insecurity of marriage and a family and like what do you yeah, mostly because like, of your social status right. and like right like that was the whole problem was he was very he was well-bred if you will yeah. and she was not as well-bred so he was like sorry I can't I can't be affiliated with you and went on to marry someone else like and that's then, yeah, heartbreaking then what do you do so um she did end up getting Mario back after her father died, but he wasn't, it wasn't until he was 14. So the majority of his childhood, he did not even know that Maria was his mother. So, um, it's just kind of a sad story. Now, Mario went on to, yeah, um, he was very involved, yeah. be a part of her work and her legacy. And after he mm -hmm. came to be with her, they were pretty inseparable after that. So it did end yeah. nicely. But um, yeah, just kind of a a sad story in her life. Well, and I think 
It's not that he didn't know her at all until he was 14. From what I remember, she, she visited like, him constantly yeah. as much as she could when she wasn't touring and lecturing or whatever. She was with him wherever he was. And he just thought she was this really sweet lady who came to be with him all the time that he really loved seeing. He didn't know it was his mom. And that's just such a sad story with a happy ending yeah. for them, at least. But just like another one of those like, man, Maria, like just constant uphill battle for this lady. Yeah. And I know that all of us kind of, when we started talking about this episode, we all were kind of under the impression that she just was really invested in her work and that she was just like, I don't have time for this kid. And as we've done a little more research, it seems like it's a little more complicated than that. Um, And again, it's hard to know all of the details of that situation as it was very private, but um, it it looks like it was a little bit more than we initially thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I'll admit I've been spicy in the past <laughs> and been like, you know, like here I am judging how I'm doing, implementing Montessori, not in my classroom, totally. in my home as a mother yeah. when she didn't even have to do it herself. I mean, come on, yeah. get off my back. I'm doing a good job. And I think I can still feel that way and not be mad at Maria. I think I need to chill out. So I'm sorry, Maria. I love you. Much love, much respect. Um, All right. Let's move on to when she actually starts working with kids. So I think, is it the, she was appointed the director of the, is it orthophrenic school or orthophrenic? It's the orthophrenic. Yeah, I was wrong. Okay. So in like 1900, so shortly after Mario was born, she's still going through all of this, I'm sure. It's very difficult. She gets appointed director of the Orthophrenic School, which is a model school for training teachers of children with developmental disabilities, or at least what they considered at that time to be a developmental disability. Remember, science and the study of the brain has not... It's like a brand new concept, right? So a lot of things are still very misunderstood and mislabeled. So for two years, she experiments at the model school with materials um, made specifically to stimulate the senses of these children. She succeeds in fostering the development of the children to such an extent that they are achieving the same results on state exams that are that would be given to typically developing school children. So obviously at that point, it's like, whoa, if this is this effective, if the way that she's approaching teaching these academic concepts and concepts of self-care, I mean, literally everything, is this effective with children that we considered to be unteachable, you know, and, and broken more or less, then what could this do on a wider scale? What if we took it outside of just this setting? And I feel like this is where her um, digging deep into observation really started because I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but she um, kind of went into these or went into this place and there wasn't materials and the children really had nothing to stimulate them. Like they were looking, I think somebody said this before and I believe I've read this in an article. There was like breadcrumbs they were like playing with on the floor. So they had like nothing And then she observed and was like, we need materials. They need something stimulating them. They're just here. And that's something to do with their hands. They need to be able to touch, to feel. So that's where um, she came in with these materials. And that's kind of how it stemmed through observation to see how, how do we meet these needs, which is what, you know, her whole philosophy is pretty much on meeting the child's independent needs. Yeah. So there's a caretaker in the children's asylum who was like, oh, these kids, these barbaric children that were playing and grabbing crumbs off the floor after their meal. And Maria was like, 
there's nothing in here for them to touch. There's nothing. It's, there's no furniture. There's no toys. There's nothing. And they were so desperate for that sensorial stimulation in their hands that it was actually making their conditions worse. And so she, that's kind of where this whole, this is where this whole thing started. And the importance of her ability to observe, which was not happening. Like Megan said that people were, you know, seeing this at the surface and thinking, oh, gross, you're playing with dirt on the floor. But Maria, she didn't see things the way other people saw them. And I think it's actually really interesting that she had a second degree um, in, so in education, experimental psychology and anthropology. So she literally was so fascinated by the study of human beings and everything about them that she just saw things differently. So she was able to create from that. And also she did um, study the writings of French doctors whose last names I am going to butcher. I-T-A-R-D. I think it's Etard and S-E-G-U-I-N, which I think is Sagan. Oh God, I am so bad at French. I'm Italian. I don't know if you knew that, but I am not French. Okay. I have a quick question. Are you actually Italian? <laughs> I no, yeah, okay. actually, I am. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I feel like I need to know this about you. I'll be happy. I will circle back to that and talk way too long anytime. <laughs> I'm not going to right now. I'm just going to say that those other doctors, if you are familiar with them, um, did a lot of also very significant work in the idea of sensorial, like the importance of the sensorial experience and um, these alternative ways to approach academic concepts with these very tangible and tactile things. So she didn't exist in a vacuum. It's not fair to say she was the only one who was making even an effort to approach education differently than your typical what was out at that time which I think was primarily kind of the German kindergarten method. Anyway, um, yeah, so those powers of observation were, I think, really what set her apart. So let's talk about when she finally opens an actual like classroom, a school. Yeah, so in here in the AA, my website, it talks about how there was a period in Rome where it was growing really rapidly and there was some construction that was going on, but the companies were going bankrupt after a while, leaving um, buildings that were unfinished and attracting squatters. And there was one in the San Lorenzo district, which was rescued by a group of bankers who undertook this restoration. And they were dividing the apartments in finishing them for impoverished working families. And while the parents were out during the day, the children were basically just wreaking havoc on these newly completed buildings. And this kind of prompted the developers to approach Maria and say, hey, can you like do something with these delinquent children and to kind of save their property? And this is when the first children's house was opened Casa dei Bambini, which was opened on January 6th, 1907. Yes. So that is Casa dei Bambini literally translates from house of babies or house of children. And that would be her like bread and butter children's house ages three through six. And that is sort of where she really started. She did branch from there then. She 
ended up coming up with a curriculum and a philosophy that spans from birth up through adolescence. And we're talking like 20, 21, right? So like the really first major chunk of a human's life and experience and existence on earth. Um, She started to publish things and speak places. And in Europe, she actually was pretty established as like an authority and fairly respected. And so she finally comes across the pond to us here in the United States at about 1913. So she comes over on a three-week lecture tour starting in D.C., Um, where she has like several hundred people listening, including family members of the president, you know, like she, you know, really had people's attention. She then speaks to about a thousand people in Carnegie Hall in New York City. Um, So that was a big, big step for her as well. And people are just loving what she has to say. Okay. So this whole like part of the timeline, this was important for, I really wanted to cover this because I feel like any time that someone has been silly enough to ask me to tell them what Montessori is and then have to sit there and listen to me go on a rant. Generally, by the end, they're like, okay, you know what? That actually sounds pretty cool. Why Why am I just hearing about this for the first time now? Like, why is this not a thing? Yeah, like, if she's so legit, yeah. right, if she's so legit, why don't all schools do it this way? Here's the history that I do know behind it. So she comes over at 1913. She's going on these lecture tours. People are eating it up. They are amazed. She actually doesn't just lecture. She has visuals. She has moving pictures of the children working on her materials and all of this stuff, right? She really puts together solid, convincing presentations. And um, she actually goes back feeling that she found the schools in America pretty faithful to her methods and considered the trip an overwhelming success. So she did open up locations while she was here. Come, comes back in 1915 um, to the West Coast and goes to an exposition in San Francisco. And later that same year, she was invited to speak at the prestigious annual conference of the National Education Association that was in Oakland, California, and more than 15,000 educational leaders are attending this. So through her visual representations and demonstrations of the effectiveness of her method, it really, really genuinely fueled a lot of American interest in Montessori education and a lot of, you know, belief in Montessori herself, which helped to propel her education across the country. So back in 1915, American newspapers and educational leaders embraced Maria Montessori, both for her pedagogy and her personality. People loved talking to her. She was a firecracker. She was super smart. She was super charismatic. She was very straightforward. Um, And by 1916, there are more than 100 Montessori schools operating across the United States. And that was such a long time ago. So it's like, well, how are there not like thousands upon thousands of them now, right? So there's a bit of a break in the timeline between when things start to blow up for her in 1915. And then she goes back to Europe and there's all kinds of stuff going on over there. I mean, things are getting nuts in Europe. Um, There's just like all kinds of political stuff erupting on the scene for her. And then it's 1920. And in 1920, the Montessori movement in the U.S. basically burns out almost as quickly as it had started. So between the language barriers, because remember, she's primarily Italian. So there's a language barrier. World War I is starting to be a real thing. And it's having obviously massive travel limitations for her. She can't be just like hopping back and forth to continents to like make sure her schools are going well. There's a massive anti-immigrant sentiment at this time. 
right, on the, in the United States. And remember, she's Italian. Italians were not- No, we're not loving Italians at this not point. Not loving yeah. Italians, okay? <laughs> Speaking for my people, I have to say that was a difficult time in our history. And then there's a the really kind of the like final straw on the in camel's back is that she did create quite a disdain in a few influential educators that were really doing well in the United States at that time. So there's this William Kilpatrick. Okay. He's a highly regarded figure in the progressive educational movement. He's like a major name. He critiques Montessori's method in his book, the Montessori system examined. And this is a guy who's very respected at the time. So He's a popular scholar of the early 20th century, and he basically criticized Montessori's credentials. He criticized her perspectives, her overall philosophy. Again, not hard to do because she's a female, right? So people are really like not that far away from being like, yeah, you're right. What is this broad know what she's talking about anyway? So he absolutely hooks onto that. He dismisses her beliefs that the role of the teacher is what she feels it is, which is a guide, right? And not a dictator. He dismisses her beliefs on the ideal classroom size and what these classroom materials should look like. He hates her whole like tactile, tangible approach to things. And And he totally rejects her interpretation of the doctrine of development, as well as the amount of freedom that children should have, which was obviously much more copious in a Montessori school. So all of that negative assessment of Montessori's approach quickly spread like wildfire. And then really throughout the U.S., it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. She, she's, This lady doesn't know what she's talking about. She can't possibly know what she's talking about. What does this lady know? And so by the 1920s, Montessori education in the United States is pretty much completely faded away, except for the occasional school or practitioner. And unfortunately, those remained private for the most part. So now we're talking about a philosophy that's become really unattainable for a lot of communities. And that's a bummer, but it's not like that everywhere in the world. I think we should mention the United States. She's such a foreign concept, but in other continents and countries, she is a common name. Yeah. And it's becoming more that way, but it still is a very privatized education in the United States. So basically what's happening at this time. So she goes to the United States. She's getting a lot of traction. People are loving what she's doing. She's like, yes. And then the United States is like, nope, you're done here. Yeah. We're not doing this. Like, all right, well, she goes to meet uh, Mussolini who's in power in Italy and he's loving Montessori method. And he's like, all right, we're going to establish Montessori schools by the Italian government. All the schools are going to be Montessori. And so she's like, great, <laughs> cool. And <laughs> and as we know, things begin to get pretty spicy in <laughs> the world, in <laughs> Italy. And the Nazis begin closing all of the Montessori schools in Germany. She goes head to head with Mussolini. He wants to have um, children during the day, you know, follow the Montessori curriculum, but also have a military curriculum. And obviously, Maria Montessori was a pacifist and she was teaching peace education, which don't really align with Mussolini's views at that point. And she ends up refusing to order her teachers to take a fascist loyalty oath and gets all of the Montessori schools in Italy closed. So she's 
getting knocked down in the United States. She's getting she's fleeing Barcelona because of a coup. She is saying no to Mussolini. Like who does that? Who tells a fascist no? <laughs> That's crazy. She's having her effigy and all of her um books burned in Germany by Nazis. Like this woman is getting knocked down at every turn and just keeps going. She's like, I guess I'll just keep teaching teachers and just keep writing books. Like she is not deterred at all. She knows that what she's come up with is something special, something that people deserve to know about and that the kind of people who were shutting her down and making her public enemy number one were the kind of people that were exactly what she was trying to change about the world. So like if she gave up, if she let them win – that would be the end of the entire thing she set out to do, which was effective peace education, not just the academics. I mean, a more attainable and concrete introduction to academics, but also a whole child, well-rounded human being that cares about the world so that we can stop having world wars because this is the second one now in her lifetime, in her adult lifetime, the second world war. I mean, you don't experience that and not feel like things need to change around here. Yeah, so she she ends up going to what is supposed to be a three-month training in India and ends up confined, both her and Mario, in India for seven years. Yeah, that's and, what we, yeah, seven <laughs> years. So she continues to teach. She continues to do teacher trainings. This is where she comes up with the cosmic curriculum that we use in our lower and upper elementary classrooms. And so I just, when I said at the beginning that I wanted to bring this method into context, there is so much going on at this time and her education, and she says it over and over, there's even a book about it, where this education is for peace. And she believes that children are the key for the future. Where And people agreed with her. She ended up getting um, nominated for three Nobel Peace Prizes. But I just, I feel like so often, and I'm guilty of this too, we look at the Montessori method and we think about the wooden toys, we think about the shelves, we think about the child perfectly pouring their water. And this, it's so much bigger than that. And the point of it is to give our children freedom and motivation from within so that they can make our world a better place. And that's why we feel so passionately about it. And I don't feel like we've talked about it enough of why this is so important to us because she was here to change the world. Yeah. I mean, look at this. She did not give up. I mean, I think I would have given up (laughs) two world wars. Like, I would have had to throw the towel in, I think. Like, okay. Being excommunicated from your home over and over again. Being an enemy of your government. I mean, this was scary stuff. Constant, like, beat down on her. Like, it was just this fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, to wrap up her timeline, because I have some, like, final thoughts about what I want people to understand about why I think she's such a cool person. But to wrap up her timeline, in 1946, the Second World War ends. And at that point, Maria and Mario both are finally allowed to return safely to Europe. Megan mentioned the Nobel Peace Prizes. So if you're interested in that, that was 1949, 1950, and 1951, three years consecutively, she was nominated for her. Seriously, like, life-changing work. And then in 1952, Maria Montessori dies on May 6th 
in the Netherlands where she actually chose to basically go sort of spend out the rest of her life rather than returning to Italy. I think there was a lot of hard feelings there, sadly. I can't imagine that was easy, but she found a lot of acceptance and love and community in the Netherlands where Montessori is actually a very very, 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 very again, that's, yeah. that's a place where it's a household name. It's kind of a household method really even. Yeah. So, um, and that is actually where she's interned in a Catholic cemetery in the Netherlands rather than in Italy. But, um, yeah, I mean, just what a life this woman had and the thing, I think Megan, you really honestly did. We could have ended this episode on what you just said about why all of us, including us can easily get lost on, the specifics of the materials and the language and again why it's so great like academically speaking I think if we just remember her bigger picture her bigger message that we're all in this together and we need to take care of each other and we need to be good to each other we need to be good to ourselves that was always the underlying you know thing for her and she got our attention by coming up with all of these other amazing things that she came up with all these things she produced as part of her studies but um it's the overall message that still, and I, I think that's what I want to say about it is she was, she was just a badass. Okay. She was a pioneer. She was a scientist. She was a doctor. She was a teacher. She was above everything else, an observer, just fascinated in humanity. So, I mean, she really just looked at everything through a different lens and her life was so extremely hard and the world was in shambles. And she used all of that to just fuel her life goal of creating what becomes a very cutting edge and ingenious approach to a whole child education. And it's still relevant, if not desperately needed today. And I think that's what's so cool about her is stuff that she was doing in the 1910s is just now being, you know, a cool new concept that you scroll during past on pandemic. Instagram, you know? <laughs> yeah, she was yeah. doing this during a pandemic right. at that time. Right. Among many, you're right, we didn't even cover all the other terrible <laughs> things going on in history. It was not an easy time to be alive and to be doing what she was doing, but she did it. With she grace. She the hell out of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she did. So she's just the bomb, man. She's Queen Maria. She and I, I think we just kind of wanted to like – because we're all a little bit obsessed. Let's be honest. I, to like speak to the amount of obsessed that I am, not only do all of us collectively own an entire library of Maria Montessori books, I have a picture of her in my wallet. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wow. don't have pictures of my children. I have a picture of Maria Montessori That's so funny. (laughs) That you look at when you want to lose your mind over your children. You're like, Maria, give me strength. I mean, can you imagine? Just like paint that picture in your head. I'm in my room eating my mango, just clutching Maria's picture, (laughs) crying. It's all sticky with mango juice. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean... I think that this is like again, we skipped over a lot. There's a yeah. lot to talk about. So and so much. So the fact that it's, you know, we've gone through all these amazing accomplishments and we still didn't even touch on all of them. Um just speaks to the amazing legacy that she left behind that we are still trying to um share. Yeah. So yeah. so Let's lighten things up to finish out the show with a segment called Confessions from the Wild. So what we all have to share, um, you know, through this cold of mine, I um, 
and still pregnant. Once again, I'm going to drink. <laughs> and I have a feeling I know where this is going, and I love it. I'm here for it. Really need to see a pelvic floor specialist after I have this child because I have been wearing disposable underwear at, at bedtime. <laughs> Because I just pee every time I cough and, you know, I've just succumbed to that. So Yeah, it is no small feat to have a coughing attack with like a watermelon hanging out on your bladder. I mean, that's just, it's tough. And I swear, it's at night when this girl just rolls on my bladder and just like Mm. kicks the living crap out of me. And I'm like, okay, thank you so much for that, darling. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, nobody really tells you that before, you know, no, when you're, this is real when you're life. a young girl and they're talking about when you someday are lucky enough to <laughs> bear your own children, they don't tell you how many adult diapers are involved. In that when you beautiful. someday are lucky enough to sleep in diapers of your own. <laughs> doesn't even wear a diaper. Oh, God. Yeah, right? That's so ironic. (laughs) He wears freaking underwear and I'm wearing a diaper. That's really nice. (laughs) Thanks to him and his sister. Yeah. Anyway, um, all right, I'll share mine. I (laughs) I feel bad because it's like, I don't know. She might listen to this someday and be like, God, mom, really? (laughs) But I have to just say, I have to send you guys a video because my daughter (laughs) – is so into her own cute little butt right now. Like she just <laughs> is feeling herself. She her new favorite activity. Okay, I will admit, when I bought the Love Every boxes, and one of the first ones when they give you like a cute little square kind of floor mirror, did I think that that someday would be used for my child to have multiple angles to adore her own butt? No, I did not. Am I really happy about it? Absolutely, I am. She loves to, usually some point after dinner, strip down in the living room and stand so that the big floor mirror that I have in the living room and her little love every floor mirror also in the living room in the same corner of the house stands at the perfect spot to be able to like look over her shoulder, (laughs) check what's going on back there. Check the goods. Looking good. She smirks just a little bit to herself. She has no idea I'm watching. So, like, she's not doing this to entertain me. She's doing this completely for herself. And I love it. I'm so proud. I'm like, yes, you do have a cute butt, girl. You know what? Going into this, my hero was Maria Montessori. And I think that now it's changed to your baby girl. <laughs> right? Admiring her butt at two I years just want to look in the mirror and feel that way about my butt. Right? Like, may she always, always, always keep that confidence and that love of yes. her little lady lumps because she is so cute checking out her own butt. She's so pleased. And also, I will say, (laughs) this is probably one step too far in this segment of confessions. When she first was born, when she first 
arrived on the scene and we gave her her first ever bath at home. Chris scooped her up and was holding her, you know, chest to chest. And so her little butt was resting on his forearm and she, he turned around for the first time that I now am seeing her at this ankle and not like laying down while changing a diaper or whatever. I'm seeing her squished in a little ball on his arm. And I could see clear as day that that butt crack was <laughs> crooked. It was janky. It came up and then whoop, 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 a little bit over to the, over this way a little bit. And I was like, oh no, the biscuits fell over in the oven. Oh, oh no. What will happen here? She, I mean, her butt's still so cute, but like, oh, I just hope that this works out for her. There's so many things to be self-conscious about as a as a human and especially as a female, right? I am happy to report she grew into her crack and everything is even and it's it's worth admiring and she does it on like a daily basis. And again, someday she's going to listen to this and be like, I'm going to freaking kill you. But until that day, please enjoy. I'm sure. Please understand like, she is two. Okay. So like, don't at me. She's she's a nugget and she likes her own her butt. You're going to that you have okay. this podcast and she's going to be like, that's so lame. Like she's not going <laughs> to listen. Like, no. I listen to you talk enough, mother. I do not need to do that for fun. Yep. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So are secrets safe then? This is secrets. No one will ever tell her. Okay, perfect. So my confession this week is more about just like me just being the most hypocritical human on the face of the earth. Like (laughs) not to be hyperbolic. Um, (laughs) At all. No. uh -uh. But so my son, he's 11 months and I'm planning his first birthday, which is very exciting. Um, and so he, he's not walking, right? So he's crawling right now, which at this point my daughter was walking. And I understand most children don't start walking at the end of, you know, 10 months into early 11 months, but I... And when other people were like, oh, my, my, like both of your babies took longer to walk. And I was very much like, every child's on their own journey. (laughs) They will be. Not every child is an Olympian. They have their own timelines. Not my child. My child is superhuman. But your kids, they develop at their own rate. And that's okay. Yeah. I was so, you know, just understanding and, you know, being a, my Montessori self of just allowing children to develop at the rate that they are going to develop. And I'm like looking at him and I'm like, why aren't you walking? (laughs) (laughs) What is wrong with you? (laughs) We're never going to get to the Olympics if you don't stand up. (laughs) (laughs) So this is just my confession of it's, it's so easy to be humble when you're on top. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to remember that every kid, it has, it just has to be that every kid is different. Like you're never going to get two that are the same. And you happen to. Just saying that as a kid, as a mom who has a kid that walks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But at much later than Jonah is now, like, remember we were up against a deadline for her being able to start school. And it was like day of that she actually started walking and you very sweetly guided and coached me through that. So... So this is funny how the tables have turned. (laughs) But you guys do have to understand, Megan's oldest child, her daughter, is she has beat 
every like what's the word I'm looking for? Not a timeline. Um, milestone. My, you know how milestones come with like windows of like you can expect the first rolled over to be from this month to this month. Yeah, or whatever she was there it is. like two months ahead. Megan's kid was always there way before the milestone windows were even open, and it was like, whoa, okay, that's. That's crazy. That's I impressive. Make superior human beings. Right. That was <laughs> for like, sure the only conclusion to come to. So it is humbling. I am here, humbled. No, I mean, so, and with my first child, I very much, again, was very like, we all are on our own journey. Um, and then this time, I, I just, there's this thing that happens. And even, even after you've had another child where you feel like they're always going to be this way, like they're not sleeping and it's just always going to be this way. They mm-hmm. are. That's yeah. true. No, it does feel like that when you're in it. It's hard to see the forest for the trees. Right? Yeah. You learn as you go on that everything is temporary, but for some reason it still feels like it isn't. So I know in my like smart brain <laughs> that it's fine and he'll get there and I won't remember probably what month he started walking because I don't remember most of like if you ask me when my daughter rolled over, I have no idea. Um because it just eventually it's not important. But right now it's so like he'll never walk. I'm like convinced it's never <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's going to, we're not going to be able to start school in fall because he's not going to be able to walk. And um, of course, these are like little feelings that I shrug off and I know are not true. But that is my confession is that I do have them. <laughs> and I, I think we all do, you know? We do. We definitely all do. But that's probably good for anybody who feels like they have that mom friend. Like for me, I felt like you were the mom friend who just had like innate comfort and confidence about these things and I was the one freaking out so yes, it's good for totally. even me to hear that like everybody everybody feels this at least a little bit at some point right all right well thank you guys so much for listening to Montessori moms in the wild if you enjoyed this episode please follow us and give us a five-star rating you could also follow us on Instagram at Montessori moms in the wild we would love to hear from you and actually a lot of you have been reaching out and sending questions and communicating and giving us feedback on the show and we are so 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 thankful please keep that coming in the meantime until next week Stay wild. Bye. Roar. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I just like phlegmy? Roar. <laughs> My sexy horse voice. Sing, sing, smelly cat for us. I am shutting this down. I'm shutting it down right now. <laughs> <laughs>